Hello, I'm Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brainspike Back, your podcast exploring the intersection between psychology and technology. Today we'll be sharing five clips from five of our best episodes. But first, I have to start this episode with some sad news. Brainspike Back will be coming to an end, at least for now. I have and always will have a passion for psychology and technology, and maybe one day I'll pick up the mic again to host this show. But right now I'll be moving on to other projects, continuing my work in the podcasting and video space. It has been an absolute pleasure hosting and producing this podcast and working with everyone on the Brainspike Back team. I want to say a quick thank you to the graphic design team for producing such incredible graphics and images over the years. Also a special thank you to Brainspike Back co-host Mags Tanev for all the amazing episodes she has brought to this podcast. And finally Tim Hinchliffe, the editor of The Sociable for all his help reviewing scripts and titles for the show and generally being a voice of reason whenever I'm bashing my head against the wall, stressed out due to all the many small hurdles that come with producing and hosting a podcast. But honestly, I want to say a big thank you to you, the listeners. Watching this podcast grow from scratch has been such a rewarding experience and it wouldn't have been possible without all of you. So again, thank you to those of you who have clicked play, clicked follow, left a review and been a part of this podcast. If you want to keep up to date with the work I'll be doing in the future, I'll be producing content for Publicize, a digital PR company and the sponsor of this podcast. You can follow them on YouTube as I'll be producing video content for the company. I'll also be hosting and producing the loudspeaker Publicize's own podcast. You can follow the show on Publicize's YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Outside of that, I'm also part of a ukulele comedy rap duo. I know what you're thinking, probably something along the lines of what or he shouldn't be rapping with that accent. But feel free to check out our work. I often get a very quizzical reaction when I say that. And I have to say it makes their positive comments and expressions even sweeter when they listen to our music. To find our music, Google Bolivar Doob. That's Bolivar Doob spelled B-O-L-I-V-A-R space D-U-B-H. Alternatively, you can also find us directly on YouTube and SoundCloud. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Medina Gear. That's spelled M-A-D-I-N-A-G-U-I-A. And on Twitter at Sam B Gear. And Gear is spelled G-U-I-A. So for this episode, we picked some clips from our top episodes. Since we did a best of 2020, we decided to pick a mix of episodes from 2019 and a handful from 2021. Enjoy. The rise of TikTok. What are the components of a successful social media platform? Now, I wanted to start with the real superstar of 2020, TikTok. To give an example of the company's success, if surprisingly anyone listening to this doesn't know them, According to Orbello, in the first quarter of 2020, there were a total of 315 million TikTok downloads worldwide. And not only is this a 58% increase from the previous quarter, more impressively, it is also the highest amount of downloads an app has ever received in a given quarter. What I want to know is why and how did TikTok become so successful? This is a really great question. And there's a number of components that make a social media platform and knowing what those components are actually helps you as a creator because we are the products for all social medias. The advertiser is the actual target customer. So if you understand that we are the product and that the attention game is the most important thing, then you know how to create content that aligns with the social media platform's goals and that actually helps you break through the algorithm. So there's, I'm going to paint in broad brushstrokes here because every social media is a little bit different, but 
the first thing that makes a successful social media platform is actually the psychological dopamine hits. The reason Facebook was so successful back in the day when it was only to college kids was because it was this new addictive thing. I actually saw a study and I, I have to find it for you. There's a study that says social media is like six times more addicting than cocaine. And I 100% believe it because every time you make a post and you get a like, you get that little dopamine hit. And it's this ever-growing beast. The more likes you get, the more upvotes, the more retweets, the more you know playthroughs or whatever that metric is, the more you feel good about yourself. You're like, look at me, I'm doing really good. And there's this downside that is our self-worth gets attached to the social media dopamine hits. So that's the first part. The second part that is extremely important is fundamentally, the social media has to help you achieve something or get better at something. Gary Vaynerchuk, the massive creator and social media icon, actually talks about this. Uh, he mentions Instagram, how in its early stages, Instagram was only a photo sharing app. Instagram made us better photographers. If you look at each social media at version 1.0 of what it is, it makes you better at something. Twitter made it better for us to put our thoughts out in a concise manner. Snapchat made it really easy for us to tell these interesting short form stories. Vine took it to a whole new level with a six second storytelling. Uh, TikTok makes us really great at content creation. All the video editing skills that you gain from something like a TikTok is kind of like insane if you think about just how hard it is to do video editing outside of TikTok. If you wanted to do a simple glitch effect six, seven, eight years ago on a YouTube video, it would take you a long time to learn how to do it. You would have to go on, try and find something like that and like recreate it step by step. Now you can literally just pull open an app and it has the whole thing set up for you. It democratizes content creation. It makes it so simple for you to make a piece of content. It's really insane just how effective it is. And then the, the another or third thing that really makes social media platforms excel is really going after the young target demographic. You really wanna hit those seven to 14 year old market. When Facebook launched, it was only for college kids. And the whole point was it made us really great at networking and getting laid. That was the main point of it. I remember being in college and being like, walking down my college and being like, who was in room 403 that I just walked by? going into Facebook, looking up room 403, seeing who the girl was, you know, checking out her likes, trying to get to know her, and then like casually making a conversation that I was also interested in this topic, which now looking back on that, that's super like kind of creepy, but like that was the thing you did back in the day. And it allowed us to be more successful at our end goal of trying to hook up with another college kid. But Instagram went after that young demographic. TikTok is going after that young demographic. When you go after that young demographic, you get people who are ardent supporters of the social media platform. It's cool, it's new, and it just grows and it steamrolls from there. 
And I would say the last major component for successful social media platforms is focusing on creating a community. The one thing that I have consistently found is the social medias that fail to nurture their own community and put the time, money, and energy into building that community, they consistently fail. A prime example of this is actually Vine. Vine was this massive platform and they came to a tipping point where basically their top 20, I think, creators, I think it was 20, were offered a boatload of money or they, they, the, the creators said, give us a boatload of money and we'll continue creating content on your platform because we're driving the users. Vine said no and they left. They went to YouTube, they went to Snapchat, they went to whatever platform they decided and the entire platform just fell apart. So those are kind of the major components. And as a user, if you understand this, you can start creating content that kind of resonates with your target demographic. You find that community, you focus on nurturing it and building up uh, that small community. And then you create that content that creates those dopamine hits, creates the people staying on the site for a very long time. And all of a sudden now you start really excelling in the algorithm and it starts boosting you. So it, it steamrolls from there. How to retain more information, improve recall and learn a new language. Uh, anyone that listens to this show knows that I'm a big fan of meditation. Uh, so I'd love to know how can meditation help with recall? Oh, one of my favorite topics. I love meditation. I don't mean to be self-promotional be here, but I want to connect this to an idea. I have a, a meditation workshop that I call, quote, empower your inner CEO with mindfulness. Why inner CEO? Because meditation adds neurons to the brain. So it's a wonderful tool to enhance your brain. And in particular, it adds neurons to the part of our brain that I call your inner CEO because it's responsible for executive functioning. And that's your prefrontal cortex. Very loosely speaking, behind your forehead is your prefrontal cortex. And that's involved with various things, including directing attention, which is a prerequisite for learning and memory. And it, and it enhances pathways between that, quote, inner CEO and our limbic systems, whose job it is, among other things, to get really upset and, and trigger fight or flight, which is a horrible thing for memory. So those who meditate improve their inner CEO's ability to manage the rest of the brain, if you will. We can see pathways thicken and enhance running from that logical command center that directs attention and is involved with memory to that emotional system that is also involved with memory, but can be both useful and unhelpful as we will come back to later, I believe. So meditation is just fantastic for your brain. Look, in today's society, a lot of people want a quick fix. Meditation is not a quick fix, but I have had an almost daily meditation practice for over a decade now, and there's zero doubt in my mind, based on my experience and the solid peer-reviewed science, it will change your brain for the better. Lots of studies are being done about mindfulness. It's a, it's a relatively new field of science, but people like Dr. Richard Davidson have, has been leading research on the many benefits that mindfulness brings us. And for those who don't know, they probably do know because they're listening to you, but for people who aren't familiar with meditation, my analogy is that meditation is a mindfulness workout. 
So you can be physically active without working out, but if you get a workout, you're definitely being physically active. It's possible to be mindful without meditating. You can just be aware of the present moment with as little judgment as possible, completely focused. But if you sit down and meditate or walk and meditate, you're definitely being mindful. So I hope everyone out there can get more moments of mindfulness, even in the busiest of work days, because among the many other benefits that are shown to come with meditation, one of them is a boost to our ability to store and recall information. Yeah, definitely. What you mentioned there kind of reflects what I've seen. It seems like only good things are coming from meditation. I suppose the hard part is just being disciplined enough to implement it in your daily life. Well, if I can jump in really yeah, yeah, quickly there, it. Sam, because this is so important, I think. This is one of my favorite topics, meditation. Another brilliant scientist named Barbara Fredrickson did a very clever study. I'll try to keep this short, but very clever study where she gave a bunch of people in a study an iPod with a couple kinds of meditation on them what's called loving kindness meditation, you may be familiar with, and mindfulness of breathing meditation. And they said, we're, we're gonna give you these for two weeks and then we want you to answer this questionnaire. And then two weeks after the experiment ends, we're gonna have this party, we'll bring pizza and beverages and we'll collect the iPods and thank you. And the clever part of the experiment was what they were really tracking was how much did people use those iPods to meditate after the experiment was quote, over not really over, but in the two weeks after they said, okay, you're done, how many people went back to that iPod and meditated? Well, those who practice loving kindness meditation meditated more. So Barbara Fredrickson says, I, I had the pleasure of seeing her speak at an international positive psychology conference. She said, Nike's just do it should be just enjoy it if you want to adopt a new behavior. So for those looking to get into meditation, look, this might sound strange when I say loving kindness or it's Sanskrit name meta meditation, but basically you're trying to nurture positive emotions towards other people and yourself. And if you do it well, it can be one of the most pleasant experiences you've ever had in your life. And that will keep you coming back for more meditation. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I've only had, well, very positive experiences myself. And I kind of want to touch on our next topic which is kind of similar because you mentioned it a little bit it revolves around discipline but exercise how does exercise impact our memory so bodies in motion have brains that produce more bdnf brain derived neurotropic factor which long scientific nerdy nerdy story short you can think of as learning aid for the brain we needed to remember, as human beings in the wilderness, so to speak, we needed to remember in particular when we were in a new area, right? So if you and I are camped out with our family and community of people and we're in the valley we're always in, well, we know where the stream is, we know where the bear's cave is, and it's not as life essential that we learn new things as when we leave that valley and go outside and like, ah, there's a cougar at the top of that mountain. Stay away from the top of that mountain. We need to remember that, right? So motion seems to generate our ability to remember more. So I hope some people listening to this are working out while they listen to it. When I want to really remember a new book, I will get it as an audiobook and I will listen to it while running. So physical exercise, fantastic for our minds and our moods, by the way. This is an aside, but again, 
As you alluded to, Sam, the trick with exercise is not knowing it's good for us, it's doing it, right? So the thing that got me to go from an occasional exerciser to a regular exerciser is coming across the science that exercise is not only good for our physical health, it's good for our mental health, happiness, cognition, and memory. I am not anyone's mental health professional, but peer-reviewed science shows that exercise is as effective as antidepressants in treating moderate depression in the long run. It boosts cognition. Kids who get exercise get higher grades. People who walk right before a test score higher on the test. So exercise is just a wonderful win-win that'll boost your body, brain, memory, and mood. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm definitely a, a big advocate for, for exercise. In fact, you mentioning the audiobooks kind of highlights one of my real loves for podcasts, really, um, yeah. because I personally love to do yoga. I'll do like hours of yoga and stretching to, nice. to podcasts. And yeah, it's one of the things which I love about audiobooks and podcasts. The ability to multitask is so easy and yep. you can just absorb new information or just simply be entertained. Yep. changing the chatter of our inner voice from destructive to productive. I really wanted to have you on today because obviously we're a psychology and technology based podcast, but I think this element of psychology is particularly important for our everyday lives. And also I think it's going to become increasingly important purely for the sake. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because Elon Musk is currently working on Neuralink. And I think a number of other companies are working on this technology where we will connect our brains with technology. And I think being able to control your inner voice will become more important than ever if we do enter any kind of state where technology is linked up. You're not going to want your thoughts going wild and perhaps searching all sorts of random things and not being able to control it. Um, but also, even before any of that happens, I think it's just incredibly important for our, our mental health. Now, there's an interesting TED talk called Mind Control, How to Win the War in Your Head by Owen Fitzpatrick. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it highlights how our inner voice is often very negative. I'd love to know why is that the case? I mean, it's not always the case for everyone, obviously, but it seems to be a reoccurring theme that sometimes our voice can be overly negative. Have you found that at all? Uh, yeah, that is true. So I like to think about our inner voice as a tool. It's a tool that we use to navigate the world. It's a tool that helps us problem solve, plan, uh, narrate our experiences. It's a tool that helps us control ourselves. Now, a lot of the time that we need to use that tool is when we experience problems and problems tend to have a, a negative tinge to it. So, so I think it, 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 it makes sense in that sense that oftentimes when this mental capacity, this mental system is, is becoming activated is in negative situations. But having said that, there is an enormous level of variability in how positive or negative people's um, inner internal conversations are. Uh, like I hinted at earlier, we use this, we use this tool to do lots and lots of things, um, you know, fantasizing about, about, about potential futures that we want to achieve or, or simulating ways of succeeding. So to give you a concrete example, before I have to give a, a, a high stakes presentation, I'll often, I'll often in my head simulate what I'm gonna say, how I'm gonna respond and so forth and so on. And oftentimes 
the simulations in my head are really positive. I'm, I'm killing it in the talk, right? So that would be an example of using that, that inner voice in, in a very positive way. So it tends to be negative, but it may not be. There's a lot of variability. And perhaps the most important thing I think for listeners to take away from this conversation about the inner voice is that it's malleable that science has revealed tools that exist that can reroute our inner dialogue so that if we find them going in the negative direction, if we find ourselves being overly self-critical or disparaging, we have the capacity to shift those inner monologues. And, and that I think is a really important nugget because it means we are not uh, beholden to, to these kinds of verbal thoughts. Instead, we have the ability to control them. When you say they're kind of malleable and we can control them, is that the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah, it is. Um, so what, what CBT does is, uh, CBT short for cognitive behavioral therapy, is it, it teaches people skills uh, in the context of therapy to dispute thoughts that are irrational and self-defeating and reduce the negative impact that those kinds of negative thoughts are having on one's life. So, so that is certainly a way of, of rerouting our internal dialogue. The kinds of tools I talk about in Chatter are not, are not tools that you need, that you, you need to um, use with a therapist. They're things that you can do uh, on your own in many cases instead. Excellent. And yeah, you mentioned it there, but you have a book coming out called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. While writing this book, is there anything you learned that you didn't know before, or did it change how you manage your own voice in your head? Well, the, the two questions there, and the answer to both questions is yes. Now, I, I'm just kidding. I'll give, I'll give you some answers to, to those it. questions. <laughs> um, so I did learn a lot while writing the book, which, which made it a really enjoyable, for the most part, experience. Um, the first thing that that I learned is I did a lot of journalism in this book. I, I spoke to people from various walks of life, uh, former CIA spies, uh, Olympic caliber athletes, C-level professionals, and then folks that were just, maybe didn't achieve the highest achievements in life, but more ordinary people. And there was a constant that ran through their stories, which is they've all experienced chatter at times. They've all struggled to harness this voice in their head, this tendency to ruminate and worry at times. None of these people were, were um, suffering from clinical disorders. They were just living life and battling the voice inside their head at times. And so that, that really stuck with me, the universality of this experience. The other thing that I learned was that it goes back to this issue of what are the tools that exist for helping people manage these internal conversations. Uh, so, so let me tell you a story that'll get to the insight I had here. My wife is from, from South Africa and about 15 years ago uh, when, we, when we got married, we visited her relatives in South Africa and we took a couple of days uh, on the side to go to the, to the bush where this really incredible magical place where you know, lions literally roam free and you can drive up and hear them roar and things like that and, and lots of other animals too. Now, one thing you should know about me is that I come from the city. I grew up in Brooklyn. I spent my first 30 years of my life living in, in cities. So 
I'm not particularly comfortable with non-human species, right? Like lions don't, don't um, they set off all sorts of alarm bells. And so I was initially concerned when our tour guide said, hey, let's go on a nature walk. And, and I found myself, interestingly, standing a lot closer to him on that walk than, than I did my wife. Um, but, but as we walk through the bush, he, he started pointing things out. He'd point to one plant and go, you see that over there? That's Charmin, two-ply, so toilet paper, essentially. Th then he'd point to another bush and he goes, you see that? Aloe vera. You can use it if you get some kind of rash. Another, another tree he pointed to, you know, that's a place you could set up shop and, and have shelter. And so when, when this tour guide looked around, he saw lots of tools that could help him survive. When I looked around, I just saw danger. And so I had a similar kind of experience working on this book because as I really dug deep into the science, what I realized is that tools exist all around us for managing our internal conversations. They're in a certain sense hidden in plain sight in the words we use to think about ourselves, in the relationships we have with other people, and even in the physical world around us, there are tools to manage our internal conversations. And, and that, was a, that was a bit of a mind blower for me, a uh, really exciting discovery. Uh, you asked me also about how it changed me. Uh, so working on chatter certainly changed me too, because as I really dug into the science behind these different tools that exist for managing, managing our chatter, it made me a lot more deliberate about how I respond when, when I experience chatter at times. And so uh, I'm much more conscious about using specific tools the moment I catch myself slipping into a fit of rumination or worry. And, and I often find myself cycling back and forth between different tools. One of the, the themes of, of my book is that there are no single cure-alls right? There's no single magic pill. Different tools work for different people in different situations. And so there are combinations of tools that I rely on uh, to help me. And, and that by and large has been a, a rewarding experience using those different tools. Professional ransomware negotiator and CEO discusses hackers' sly tactics and how to defend yourself. See, when, um, when I first heard about your company, uh, I thought it was, um, I suppose I kind of maybe glorified the idea in my head when I think of negotiators or certainly hacker um, negotiators that deal with ransomware hackers. In my mind, I, <laughs> I think um, I glorify, I've maybe watched too many films, Bill, because <laughs> in my head I always think of it like how a hostage negotiator might negotiate with, um, uh, I suppose, kidnappers or people that are taken hostage and it, I see it as a real kind of high octane, really thrilling kind of um, process. Yeah. Is it anything like that or is it pretty relaxed? Are the hackers generally pretty relaxed on people or is it very kind of like intense? Uh, it, it can really run the spectrum. I would say the majority of the stress associated with handling these these negotiations is really just you know the impact and the timing of the outcome of the negotiations on our clients um, you know most of our clients are in very urgent situations uh, like i mentioned potentially existentially damaging if they can't recover um, and so that obviously you know puts a great deal of pressure on us um, to handle the negotiations well uh, but that's our job you know we're not out on the you know the airplane tarmac with the radio 
uh, you know, in the pouring rain, um, we're kind of just sitting behind computers typing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little, it's definitely a little less dramatic and it's probably a little stressful, but uh, it, it has its, uh, its moments of stress. And do you use certain psychological tactics or techniques when you are negotiating with these hackers? Uh, we do. Uh, we use uh, different techniques with different groups. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that we aggregate all the data is that so that we can look back at what has been successful and what has not been successful. Uh, and when we see tactics that uh, have been successful, we try to reuse them um, and obviously not make it known that we're reusing them. But um, we have a kind of a big playbook of tactics and techniques that we use uh, depending on the situation um, and the threat actor. Would you be able to give an example? Is there anything that comes to mind or, um, or anything that you use which, uh, I don't know, might be interesting for listeners that you're able to share? <laughs> yeah, we, um, we, we keep this information uh, pretty close to the vest. We assume that everything we publish is that they read it and listen to it. and. Uh, uh, we don't want to give them the advantage. No, I understand. But on a separate subject, um, from what you know of the industry, do you find that the majority of businesses give in to hackers' demands or do they refuse to do business with these hackers? Sure. So uh, the, the, the majority of ransomware attacks that result in data being encrypted, uh, the outcome of those does not even involve contacting the threat actor because they have workable backups. And frankly, that's that's the majority of ransomware cases and most of which we don't even see, right? If, if we get contacted, it's because there's the possibility that negotiation and payment may be necessary. And when that is the possibility, we always advise running that in parallel to other options to restore data because it just saves time, right? If you if you it's going to take you three days to um, comb through all your backups and see what's viable. You don't want to then start the the negotiation process three days later. You want to run it in parallel, and then when you re reach a point where you know you have you know option B ready to pull the trigger, uh, rather than having to start option B and spending you know two or three days doing it. So I would say broadly, the majority of ransomware attacks don't result in even contact being made with a threat actor because uh, there's a workable backup and the company doesn't need to. Um, with regards to cases that uh, that we handle uh, that actually come to us where that's the, poss um, the possibility, I would say that it's, it's, the, it's the slim majority, like it's certainly over 50%, but it's not like 100% um, of the cases that we handle result in the company actually needing to make payment. Uh, if there's one thing that's really encouraging is uh, I think that a lot of companies, when this first happens and they realize, especially when there's no backups, right? That's which is we we see that a lot, where either they don't have backups, period, or the backups have been wiped or encrypted. When we um, set our strategy and get into our negotiations, um, you know, we tell the company, listen, you know, you, you need to start restoring and rebuilding systems and bringing things back online because this may take, um, it may, you know. It may take a day or two, or it may take it may take longer. Um, so you can't plan on you know snapping your fingers when we make the payment and your networks is is just restored. So start rebuilding, start getting machines back online. We recognize there's not going to be anything there, but people still need to email. People still need to start processing orders. So start rebuilding your business, and we're going to do this in parallel. Um, and if there's one encouraging thing is I think once you get past once companies get past the initial shock. They start realizing and contextualizing the business value of what's missing, and they start finding ways to either recreate the data 
from other places that they didn't know about, um, or realizing that potentially the business value of what's been lost isn't that critical, um, which is always great because it you know it gives us more negotiating leverage to you know to not pay when the business value of what they need goes down. But you know on the other end of the spectrum, we see our fair share of cases where you know the company is just rudderless. They have you know hundreds of employees that are idle. They have a warehouse that can't move product. And they, you know, they tell us we will be out of business in 48 hours uh, if we can't get back up and running, and we have no backup, so payments are only option. And so that happens as well. I suppose it's an expensive lesson as well. Uh, it's an expensive lesson, regardless. I think um, it's uh, regardless of how it goes. You know, the the former example I made or the latter. It's um, it's, it's something that I don't think folks fail to remember as they bring their networks back up and hopefully change their security posture in the future. Exploring the dark web with an ethical hacker and former Israeli police cybercrime operative. I was told that, or one thing that I do know about the dark web is that it was um, released by the government to try and cover communication. Maybe you can uh, explain the history or the, its conception better than I can, Alex. Uh, yeah, that's correct. So the, the Tor protocol was originally developed by the, the U.S. Naval Intelligence uh, Department of... I, I, I think it might have been the Department of Electronic Warfare, but it was definitely created by the uh, U.S. Uh, Naval Intelligence Group. And the the purpose of the Tor network was for people in various parts of the world, essentially State Department agents or other intelligence agents, to be able to communicate securely. So if their traffic is being monitored by the government of the region that they're in, they still have a message. They still have a, a secure pathway to communicate back to back to home. Uh, without without being compromised in the process. But from an operational security perspective, if the only people making use of this network are the, the spies and intelligence agents deployed throughout the world, then encrypted traffic coming in at that network is pretty identifiable to, the, to that agent. So what they did instead is they made it completely public. And by allowing the entire world to, to essentially create this second internet, essentially it creates uh, enough noise within the network uh, so that communications can uh, still be done securely. And the Tor network is still used for that purpose. And it's by, by right now, probably by uh, all intelligence agents, agencies throughout the world. Do you think that the government ever expected it to be adopted by criminals or did they foresee this? Or was that something which they completely messed up on? I, I imagine it probably was foreseen. Uh, the, the the development of, of these the technologies, well, once it was released and, and adopted by the crypto anarchist community, um, it's sort of needed for the original purpose of the technology to, to actually uh, function. So if the original purpose is communication for intelligence agents uh, undetected, what better way than to have an entire network flooded with all sorts of crazy activity that would obfuscate that. So I, I believe that was part of it because the crime that takes place on the dark web, the, it can also be found that the same things such as drug dealings and fraud can be found on major social media networks. So the, the so I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's like any technology, it can be used for good or can be used for bad. A, a gun can be used to attack or defend. Mm -hmm. And Alex Peleg, you you worked for the cybercrime unit La Lahav, um, Lahav four four hundred and thirty three four three three. Am I saying that right? Yes, you're uh, pronouncing it right. Lahav four three three is yes, it, it's a police uh, unit, uh, and it has uh, the Israeli cybersecurity unit. 
part of uh, this uh, major unit. Uh, it's a it's a Israel-wide unit, but uh, we uh, have investigated crimes not only for uh, Israel because the nature of this activity is a global activity. Uh, it's very hard to to say that uh, only one state or one only one police agency uh, or federal agency is uh, controlling the this uh, activity or can uh, investigate crimes uh, over the deep web it's very hard because by the nature uh, of uh, the communications it uses uh, three hopes uh, in the internet or three nodes you may say uh, in order to establish communication so uh, communication originating from the U.S. Uh, may end up uh, in Nigeria or uh, Netherlands or any other place in the world. So if you really want to investigate crime and cyber criminals, uh, you must have the cooperation uh, of uh, the global uh, federal agencies and uh, Interpol um, and the FBI and everyone uh, work together in order to do the investigations. Yeah, I just wanted to, to uh, ask, when that cooperation takes place, essentially the focus becomes on uh, essentially the investigation of things that could be done, uh, things, way to attribute the user behind the keyboard, ways to maybe reveal the user without looking at the traffic because the traffic is uh, is encrypted. So the, the partnerships are needed because uh, there are things that can be done to exploit the protocols around Tor to actually reveal the user. And in order to do that from a law enforcement perspective, it, the international cooperation is often needed, and that seems to be the where the where the focus would be because the technology of the technology of Tor and other darknet technologies is pretty sound. Growing a company has many hurdles, from securing funding to expanding your business capabilities to ranking better on search. Each business challenge is uniquely complex. The solution to these challenges is growth-focused digital PR and marketing, and that is where our sponsor Publicize comes in. Publicize sets itself apart from traditional PR companies. It doesn't charge large retainers or churns out press releases whether you've got a newsworthy announcement or not. Publicize builds your business's online presence and gets high-quality PR and media coverage for startups and entrepreneurs who are priced out of a broken PR industry. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash bbb. That's publicize.co slash bbb.